Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. I'm excited to have this conversation with, with Karen Danujaya, founder and CEO of Bloom. Welcome to Founder to Mentor, Karen. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited. Can you start us out? Can you give us an intro on yourself and on Bloom? So Bloom started five years ago in my apartment kitchen. Um, and the brand is really about making superfoods accessible. So what I found was that wellness products are often extremely clinical about living without versus living with. And we wanted to create kind of like a, a new category of wellness products where you actually wanted to enjoy them. And it was a flavor first approach. So we're recreating familiar flavor cafe favorites uh, with superfoods, refined, sugar-free, and totally organic. Awesome. I should say I'm having a salted caramel oat milk <laughs> cappuccino as we speak. So, um, uh, Also loving your sweater there. Michael. Yeah. And I'm representing <laughs> the brand. So I think everyone, everyone knows that it'll wear the brand on my sleeve. Um, yeah. And talk to, you know, how did you get into um, entrepreneurship? Uh, what, what was kind of driving entrepreneurship for you? Well, I, I always wanted to do something entrepreneurial to um, have my own company. I grew up in a family that was pretty entrepreneurial. My grandfather um, was a self-manufacturer in the plastics business of all things. And um, so I kind of like grew up in that mindset, but I didn't, I um, I ended up going to school for commercial real estate. So moved out from Ontario, went and got a business degree in, in real estate finance. And that was what my first job was. And um, although I knew I wanted to do something on my own, I, I never really felt like I had that perfect idea. So I started climbing that corporate ladder. That was kind of like the beginning of my career where I found and I hated it from day one, To if I'm being like <laughs> really honest. But I'm so grateful for that place because commercial real estate is this place that is all relationship-based. So I was going to coffee meetings, um, like tons of coffee meetings every day. And it's that's really where Bloom came from. Like I realized that what was available to me on those menus was always caffeinated, always syrup-based. Um, at that time, there was like very few plant-based options and none of them met any of my wellness goals. So the first product was a turmeric latte and it was really about solving that problem for myself. And I would bring like these mixes to the cafes with me and, um, and yeah, that's, that's how I got started. You know, this question comes up a lot and I know that you, you've had some experience, so I'd love to get into, you started the business with a co-founder, uh, who's no longer, uh, with the business. Love to hear, you know, how you picked the partner in the first place, kind of what you learned on a partnership that uh, ultimately didn't work and, and maybe for some other, what, what founders should be thinking about as they're, as they're thinking about, you know, do I co-found uh, a business with someone or, or do I do it a different way? Yeah, well, I can lay the roadmap for what not to do. <laughs> I think <laughs> When I started Bloom and you know, I'd love to say that we had this like perfect business plan. We knew exactly what we wanted to do, that we wanted it to be a global brand. But really, like a, a lot of that has been in development, like in progress as we see how people respond to it, as we gain market traction and fit, you know, that dream expands for me all the time. And so in the beginning, it was about, you know, 
um, you know, solving this problem for myself and finding someone to do that with, you know, like being like being excited and getting going on it. And so it wasn't this like beautifully crafted shareholders agreement that we had from the beginning. It was it was honestly like a friend who um, was creative with someone who was less uh, risk averse than I was and that we just, you know, got started with. And um, in the end, like we just had really different visions for the company and it was nobody's fault. Um, I mean, there wasn't like a very clear vision from the get go. There wasn't, you know, this agreement of what we were trying to do from the start. And so um, in the end, you know, now um, she's not involved in the company and is off doing her own things and, and I'm doing my own things. But for new founders, I guess, that are starting out, um, I would say that the things that I wish I had done differently is finding someone who, A, wants the same things out of it, like has the, like, as much as you can clarify the vision and, and what, what you're striving towards, um, having some sort of plan together that everyone's in agreement with, that 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 piece was really missing for us um, just because it was such like an impromptu out of the moment um, idea and company and like how that's how it was born. Um, but also someone who really complements your skill set. So I had come from finance and operations. So that was really like I was super comfortable sourcing and pricing out um, recipes and and all that sort of thing but I didn't have the marketing creative side the same way and and she did so that was one thing that we did right with the partnership she had come from like a marketing agency was really comfortable with copy she named the business actually so you know having somebody who um, complements the skill sets and and I think you know you know obviously the process of buying out a co-founder and you know, not not being in alignment about where where it's going, it leads to really tense conversations or really awkward conversations. And I think something that I would look for in a partner today is, can you go through conflict? Can you, or is it somebody that you want beside you in tough times? Because there are tough times. Is it somebody that you can like really trust and rely on who's dependable? So kind of like even outside of like, base skill sets like can they write copy can they manage social can they build a brand it's it's like are they like the person that you want beside you when your co-packer drops you when your ingredients don't come in when you can't make payroll like just kind of um are they like a partner and I think that's really hard to know in advance without you know um it's really hard to scope that yeah I think some of those things you're talking about are that's the the fit part like people could have great competencies or experience and be able to do the sales thing, do the marketing thing. But if they're not emotionally there, emotionally stable, emotionally with you when, when you're trying to figure out an impossible challenge and they kind of break down or like, is that the partner that you want, you know, uh, or how do you, how do you figure out if the person is like that? And then, and then, uh, and then realize before you kind of jump into a, a marriage with them, a legal agreement with them and starting a business that, uh, that, that you're actually want to, you want to hang out with those that person in the good times and the bad times, because as entrepreneurs, yeah, exactly. we know there's there's lots of bad times. Yeah, it, it's kind of weighted that way. <laughs> I would say <laughs> scary times, anyways. Can you give us a uh, an overview of where the company's at now? So Bloom really started off as um, we were selling to coffee shops. You know, it was eighty percent food service, um, and then the pandemic happened. So um, when I bought the business, so like March twenty twenty. 
we were in about a hundred doors and most of them were coffee shops and brunch spots. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, we did like a really fast pivot to be an e-commerce brand. And, um, and so that became the focus. So 2020, 2021, the business really grew primarily in e-commerce and that's what like I would say that we're mostly um, today, our revenue is mostly e-commerce focused, but then we also distribute to about 2000 points of distribution, mostly in Canada as well, although that is, you know, um, changing quickly. And so the business this year is on track to do about 9 million in sales and um, has grown 300% year over year for the past. Yeah, it's amazing. Amazing growth. Uh... <laughs> People really fell in love with the product, and uh, I know I, I was one, right, uh, uh, of meeting you and, and trying it out, and just saying, "Hey, this is this is the best superfood uh, mix that you can add to your lattes or your functional drinks." And um, yeah, starting out as a D to C brand, and then and then transitioning into retail uh, or more balancing the, the growth of the business into uh, into retail. Can you talk to some of the challenges um, being a, you know, and this could be the structure of the business, uh, people inside or, or your learnings of how different it is to sell in a, in a brick and mortar or in a chain compared to selling direct to consumer, but would, would, would love to, uh, would love to unpack some of your learnings. Well, I mean, we're still going through it, you know, like the business is still mostly e-commerce focused or, or has been, um, or most of the businesses from e-com. I think one of the, the biggest, maybe I'll start out with one of the things I loved about it. Now, when we're going to retailers, we are really clear in who we are. We have information about who our customers are. We um, know what speaks to them, what skews our bestsellers. And we have, you know, um, a really clear story to tell retailers and buyers as we like enter retail. So I am really grateful that we did this route where we started e-commerce we tested and learned so many things really quickly that would have been really hard to test at retail first. Even so much as like, you know, the positioning, what is our hero skew? Like all of that has changed in the last two years based on learnings through um, our D2C website. So I'm really glad that we took that path, but definitely there are some challenges now as we head into retail, very different business and I'm learning it as we go. But I think like the biggest thing is just, you know, um, aesthetic almost like how pack packaging, how you're how you're ready for e-commerce versus how you show up on a shelf. Obviously, when you bring someone to a website, you've got a whole landing page. You know, let's say, you know, our hero skew is the salted caramel. I can tell you about where we source the ingredients. I can tell you what their functional benefits are. I can tell you the process of putting it together um, and without putting any of that on a package, you know, without that messing with the aesthetic of it in any way. And so me and my naivety, I felt like we could transition that to a store the same way and that people would be drawn to, you know, a minimalist look. But the context of how people shop is so different and so nuanced and, and why you go into a grocery store, what you're looking for is so different than how you would go into an indigo or an anthropology or how you would go onto a, a website and your that channel mix you know we really at bloom want to do well like we want to have all of it um but there needs to be like variations in how you show up and how you present and so that's that's a learning that i'm having right now about you know just like really understanding 
how the customer changes by channel and how the context in which they shop changes in each channel. Um, and, and what we can do as a brand to educate and support that buyer journey in the different contexts. Yeah, it's a good share. I mean, I guess, you know, in store, you don't have that landing page backing you up saying like, here's our whole story. Here's all the benefits you get, you get your little product on the shelf. And if people don't miss the message on it, it just may not land with them. Uh, where right. yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about, you know, how you find, cause you, you did a really great job bootstrapping the business and then, and then raise capital, um, in, in 2022. And, and there was, you know, there was a, a press release around that and, and, for full disclosure, I'm a shareholder with Bloom, but I would love to you, you kind of talk through kind of your bootstrapping of the business and then and then your decision to go and 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 bring on shareholders and raise capital. You know, the bootstrapping journey is one that I'm super proud of, um, and I think add a lot of principles to the company that I hope that we carry forward post raise. And I wish I had some secret sauce to tell you how it was, except that it was you know you start with a hundred. A purchase of 100, then you go to 150, then it's 175. It was literally just like one step at a time and you took on what you can. I think in the beginning, I put in about $5,000 into the business and that was enough for, you know, the first packaging run, the first run of ingredients. And I, I just like personally did deliveries in the beginning. You know, it's, it's um, looking at every opportunity to like, like where, where is the money best spent basically? And, um, and I think that the whole team that like, you know, now we're a team of 15 people. Um, we really think through the return on everything we spend, you know, do we need to do that? Is, is that where we should be spending our time? Um, is that a priority right now? Or is that something we should do later? And in a startup, there are so many different competing priorities at all times and you want to do everything. Like I want to do that subscription box. I want to go to that trade show. I want to be at that market demo. I, you know, all the things. And the bootstrap journey really forced us to say like, okay, what's actually going to move the needle? What can we actually do well? And, um, and I think that's something that's like now integral to the culture. Um, we, <clears throat> It got to the point, though, where I was saying no to retail opportunities because we couldn't, you know, necessarily finance what we needed for the inventory. We were saying no to marketing opportunities that we really wanted to take on. And we had seen over the past few years the growth of the company and that, you know, the opportunity was now for superfoods and the mission and the positioning. And I and myself as an entrepreneur felt ready to take it on. Um, you know, to, to go more aggressively, like at the growth and expand into the US. And, and I think that, um, you know, so many things were happening at the same time, including our expansion into retail, which we've kind of explored being like its own beast and needing, you know, the support and advice to do it well, because you have less, less opportunity to pivot the way you do on e-commerce, like where you adjust a landing page and you move something up and you change the wording. You know, you don't have that, like the timelines are really different in retail. So I think there were so many things that uh, pointed to me as it was like the right time to bring in strategic capital, you know, people who could support where we were headed, the expansion into the States, the expansion into retail. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful that we had that bootstrap journey because not only did it add the, you know, the principles of like 
only work on what makes sense really. And like, you know, the products were set up from the beginning where we had a really strong understanding of our numbers and our margins where we didn't, we weren't relying on scale for it to make sense. Um, but also I think that it set me up for success when we did eventually go out to raise, you know, it was a story that investors respected and I wanted to be the majority shareholder of the company. And unless we had had a few years of slogging it, I, I, it wouldn't have been that. So, you know, it was the right story or journey for me. It might not be the right journey for everybody, depending on the opportunity in front of them. There is no one size fit all, I think, for finance and raising and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then I think like the other complexity for raising too, which is more of like a personal one, is just like as a woman, a, min a minority woman, um, I think I had hesitations about going into raising, like what kind of partners like how hard would it be for me? You know, you hear stories about only 3% of venture funding going to women. Like how challenging would it be? Like, would I, um, would I still be able to control the direction of the company, would, which I really wanted? So I think there was like a lot of things that went into like the decision and why I did it when I did it. But I'm, I'm so glad that we have specifically the people behind the business now. It's just become, you know, instead of it being our team, pushing the business forward, all of a sudden we have, you know, these champions out in the market who are looking for opportunities for us and who are able to guide us in, in big decisions. Like Mike, we just had a conversation where I was like so flustered <laughs> and you're just like, you know, able to add some context and be a sounding board. And, and yeah, I think that's really valuable. Um, at least at, at where I was in the journey. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You, you, you know, you did a great job at, at bridging the gap that, um, well, at least gets talked about a lot, right? Like women founders don't are less likely to get funded. Uh, minority founders are less likely to get funded. Women minority founders, I think, is probably you know it, it's a, it's this niche of the niche. But were there any situations that you found yourself in that that some of the investors you were talking to um, were conducting themselves like that? And if so, like how did you how did you handle it? Yeah, that's a super like loaded question in a way because you know I think like just if I can like take it just one like some context laying, because I think about this a lot. Um, I was really lucky. You know, I had built a network over um, the past few years that was able to support the raise. Um, like, for instance, you were somebody that I had known for a few years and had developed that relationship. And I think that something that is really hard for me and a lot of women is just like talking about your accomplishments, talking, you know, talking yourself up. And it's sort of like, the context of raising is sort of like you need to sell people on what you're doing and yourself. So I found that really hard. Um, it was something that I sort of had to like push through. But I also think that the, the angels and investors and VCs are really trying to change that dynamic as they better understand how different um, women and men can be in the way that they present themselves and the way that they raise. So in our round, about 40% of the investors are actually women. And that was something that was important to me. You know, we're an all-female team. 90% of our users are women. Like we really wanted to have women represented on the cap table. And I think that there was, at that time, it was also a lot of respect around this, the bootstrapping story. You know, the climate had sort of changed. Investors were looking for um, businesses that had kind of um, sound financials, if that makes sense, or like a, the basis for a profitable business. And, and so I was, I was really lucky. And I think I had 
I think I had a, a really positive experience, but I was asked really strange questions that I don't think others would be asked. Like I was definitely asked if I had kids, if I had plans to have kids. Mm -hmm. um, I was asked if I was Asian. Bloom is like a woman owned company. It was in my pitch decks. People asked like why that was relevant. Like I was asked like some pretty, like I think strange questions, but um, on the most, for the most part, um, super supportive. Lots of people looking to support women entrepreneurs and none. And, and I think if I was talking to, you know, a founder who's going out to raise, I think it's like, these are people who are going to be involved in your business for years, like for years. And so just to have the boundary, you know, like if people are asking you questions in your first meeting where you have like this gut feeling that there's like a value misalignment, I know that, you know, there's such like a power dynamic difference there where you're looking for money you need capital for your business and you want to like fudge that line but um if i was giving like advice to founders going out to raise now it's like if you have any inclination that there might be kind of like a weird fit there is just you know there there are other people out there and it's better to wait and to to find the right partners because you're going to be with them for a really long time yeah it's a good that's a good share it should not it definitely not feel weird, but some people can get pressured into that because they need the capital and then they're, they they want the deal so bad instead of, I talk about it all the time, it's it's more of a, a volume game. Like the more people that you know, the more conversations that you have, that you could just say no to all the things that just, it's not a fuck yeah, it's a no. Uh, and so if like, if you don't resonate with people or, or, they're, or they're giving you some kind of weird vibe, then uh, close the door and, and, and move on. I think what you said there about volume is really important. You can't go into a race thinking you need to talk to five people and that they're all going to say yes. And even in our story where, you know, it was, you know, fairly fast raise, we raised, we were oversubscribed. I talked to probably a hundred people. I think that just like, let's like level set that expectation that no matter how amazing your product is, no matter how great your growth is, like you should be talking to lots of different people who can support in different ways. Um, and that um, no matter how good it looks from the outside for media, like the, the founders that are successfully raising are hustling to, to, to get different perspectives and to like volume sounds bad, but I mean, it takes work, it takes time. And um, it's just like part, part of doing a raise is making sure you have the time to really like generate the interest and build the excitement around it. Yeah. A lot, a lot of entrepreneurs see the, have chuckles with it because they don't think of it as a, as a process. Um, and if you're raising capital, it's a process. It's almost like a full-time job raising capital, depending on how much capital you're raising and which stage the business is at. Um, and obviously as an entrepreneur, you can't, you can't give your full time to that job, but you have to give a, a tremendous amount of time bloom probably because the situation you're in and how successful you are when you bootstrapped, it was, it was maybe a little easier, but even then like a hundred conversations, like, um, if people think, Oh, you know, my mom and dad invested in the business, or if I had friends and family, now I'm going to go out the next stage to the real world, um, and yeah, talk to five people, and and uh, you could it could be zero out of five, right? But as soon as you get up to kind of a hundred, maybe you maybe you have five people, ten people that are interested, twenty people that are interested out of that hundred, and um, so you know, thinking about the kind of start, middle, and end of how many, how prepared you need to be to, for the raise. Um, you know, again, I invested in Bloom. The the I saw your guys' track record, but, you know, the presentation of what the company was doing and where, where the potential it had to, to go 
was pretty clear. So if you if you put a good presentation together, and then you go talk to enough people, you're probably going to be uh, you're probably going to be successful. And and if you don't do those two things, um, more likely of a chance you're just going to be you're not going to achieve your goal of the certain amount of capital, or it's just going to be a lot delayed, especially uh, especially in this environment. Speaking of investors, it, 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 you uh, uh, had a chance for and you got aired on Dragon's Den, uh, and that was just kind of recent, depending on when people are listening to this uh, episode. But uh, what, uh, how was that experience, and, and what, what impact has it had on, on Bloom? Uh, I don't even know how to talk about that experience. I, the, we filmed the episode back in May, so a few months ago, and you know, overwhelmingly so positive from our community. Um, I think that one thing I'm so grateful for from that from that experience is just to, you know, to share the business side of the journey versus like, these are lattes, these are the health benefits, this is how you make them. Like to share the how scared I was, how nervous I was, to share the outcome of the show, to share like, like the reality after the show, like all of those things have really engaged our community. So from an organic side, I, I'm so glad I did it, whether we acquired a single new customer or not, because our our customers love to follow along the journey and get to hear more about these products that they've been, you know, consuming and following for a long time from a different lens. So the Dragon Sun experience, you know, so we went on the show and in the end we did get a deal with Arlene. And going into the show, I was in the middle of doing kind of like our actual, like the raise outside of it. And so, you know, for one reason or another, it didn't end up kind of going through. Like we we were looking to raise on a safe um, so that we could execute it really quickly. And that wasn't really how like district ventures typically structures their deal. But the actual process of going on Dragon's Den really forced me to A, like put together a pitch that was like really concise to know your numbers to to like, how do you want to present this if you were talking to a hundred strangers? And I think as a founder, you get so caught up in the weeds that you never take a step back to to really think about how you're presenting the overall mission. I wish I could go back and redo the beginning of this episode for, for, for instance. And so I think that like that whole experience of like actually taking a step back, if I was presenting this to someone's grandma, how do I want to share it? And also just like being able to bring our customers along on a journey was so meaningful um, as we were really trying to like deepen relationships with our community to build a brand versus build a transaction. And so, um, yeah, I'm so glad that I did it and I would recommend it to anybody, but I know everybody has very different experiences. So, well, and I think it, it, it speaks to being prepared again. You, you touched on some of the points there, like, you know, where, where you seem kind of probably maybe more of a flop on those shows as people going in not prepared. Uh, and if you're prepared, then you're probably going to get the deal or or more likely have a chance of doing it. But maybe it's it's just a good kind of metaphor for everything in business. Be prepared. Understand what you're, uh, what, <laughs> yeah. what you're doing. Say like one, one weird like behind the scenes of that is that those lattes that they were drinking were made like two and a half hours earlier. Yeah. And so I was freaking out about that because they're, and they're, and the producers were saying how, Oh, they're professionals or whatever. They they won't mind that it's cold. A cold, a cold latte. Like serving like a cold pumpkin spice latte in a hot like. So that was one thing. Like that was really I don't know. Bring a warmer. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or served ice lattes. Maybe then you got uh, you yeah. Got serve ice lattes. Ice. Yeah. 
I'd love to, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about your, your, your thoughts on strategy for innovation. Like you, you started out bloom and you were selling turmeric lattes, which, you know, turmeric is an awesome product. It's very therapeutic, but you know, a lot of people would be like, no, thanks. That's not for me. And then, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm sipping on the salted caramel, uh, bloom, uh, cappuccino uh that i made and and you have pumpkin spice latte and like how are you thinking about innovation nowadays as it relates to kind of new bloom products i mean in the beginning like the first product the turmeric latte was really about solving a problem for myself which we kind of talked about but ultimately i wanted and i knew that for bloom to be successful we needed to be solving a problem for others and for our customers so all of our new products like salted caramel, pumpkin spice, mint cocoa, they're actually direct requests from our customers. We do regular surveys of our retailers, regular surveys of our D2C customers on social. And, and that's how we choose key ingredients. That's how we choose flavor profiles. And it's a constant test and learn. So when I think about innovation for the future, one, as a small business that, you know, we've done this raise, but it it's it doesn't mean we have unlimited resources and and so i i really want to keep the skew uh collection tight we're always rationalizing skews so lower performers get kicked and we're trying to introduce higher performers um at bloom we have a a, a seasonal approach too so we often have limited edition skews that are you know pumpkin spices in and out for six weeks sort of thing to bring you know interest and excitement and um that one's come back a few times so it's like a great way to bring back returning customers so i think like at a base um i want the products to be solving for what customers really want and we don't guess that it's like through direct conversation um with like direct dialogue with our customers but that also they always have to ladder up to a, a bigger mission and so, you know, Bloom could do coffee, like coffee could do, you know, there's, there's just, we could do superfood snacks. We could, you know, go in all these different directions, but ultimately what was the original impetus of the brand? What is like the original mission and values at our core? And we use it as a criteria to X ideas. Um, and when we haven't, that's when products have flopped. So it's very, very tempting to grow through innovation, like to grow through a new skew. And um, I'm not saying that we haven't done that in certain cases. And at some at some points, that is like the right move. But I think holding yourself to a really tight standard in terms of do a few things really well, like keep the skew um, in our case, keep it keep it tight. We have like less than 10 skews most times. Um, then you can focus on like operational efficiencies. You can focus on supporting those SKUs. You can focus on making those SKUs better and, um, and always making sure that they're laddering up to like brand values, mission and what your customer actually wants. Um, and just like not to play it guessing at that, like assuming like there are ways to find out what your customer wants. So do that. That's a pro share right there. Because I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with it. Oh, even if they find some success, you know, and you said it there, like Bloom started finding success in, in, uh, in superfood powders for your lattes. And, and, uh, and then, you know, should you get into the bar category, uh, you know, and, and how much risk is there compared to uh, and how much off brand some entrepreneurs feel like they, they create a good brand. So it gives them license to do everything. But uh, um, the best way is doing consumer research, talking to your customers and like understanding what they want from the business. And then what, what are they giving the brand license to actually sell to them? Cause you can't be good at everything. 
And well, we know this because we tried to do a pumpkin spice candle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, if anybody wants that, it's on sale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, you know, hey, the more mentorship. inner workings do you actually want here? Yeah. <laughs> the, the biggest mentorship thing that I, that I share with a lot of uh, founders when I talk to them is like, do less and do a better job at it. That's just, that, that, that's a one-on-one for brands because you, you, it gets carried away. I, I did it myself at Mantle Harvest, thought like, oh, we're, we're the hemp experts so we could make hemp everything and 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 people will love it and and it's just it 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 gets really really challenging i want to talk about scrappiness because you know it uh uh, bloom it you know you bootstrapped you were you you have been a scrappy business but i'd I'd love to uh, i'd love to hear a story um about you know something scrappy uh of building bloom well, okay, scrappy, <laughs> scrappy, cheap, sort of the <laughs> same. We talked about like, you know, those sort of being in the same coin. But um, one one story that I think that really like embodies like um, like who I am with Bloom, sort of thing, is that often like like let's say let's take a trade show for instance. You know, you go to a trade show and people are spending unbelievable amounts on. Flying, flying their team out, um, building elaborate booths, like just like the above and beyond that happens there. And then you look at brands like like Midday Squares, for instance, where it's just like a black tablecloth. And um, <laughs> and like, you know, and there's one person there being like, have a bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like, I think that there's opportunities for scrappiness in almost every decision you make as a founder where you can, and you can choose where to go big and where to go lean. And I think something I'm actually working on is that I lean towards the super frugal lean side in all, yeah, yeah. In, in all situations. And there are times where it's like, okay, you got to like loosen the purse strings and take a bet. Um, and that's something that I'm working on personally. But um, like some things that I've done is like, for instance, there was like a local company that was like over inventory and there was like a lot of, like overlap between ingredients, like in terms of specs and just like, you know, looking for opportunities to save dollars, like every chance that I could in the beginning. Um, I was the person doing deliveries out of my car for the first two years. Like I would just like wake up at five in the morning before I had to go to my commercial real estate job, drive out to Steveston, which is like an hour from where I lived to drop off a package, which, you know, in hindsight is probably not the best idea, but it's just like this willingness to no job too big, too small. Like instead of, you know, scrappiness being cheapness, I guess it's, it's also like not being too good to do something, you know, don't ask other people to do things you wouldn't do yourself. And I have done every function of Bloom, which also means that um, I'm better able to support team members who now fill those roles. Like if you've experienced it yourself, and you can also be a better people leader, I think, in the sense that you've got more compassion for how it happens and, and how to correct for it. So I think like, you know, do I have like the perfect story for scrappiness? I, I, I think it's more like something that I try and embody every day in the sense that you move quickly, you're not too big for any job, and, um, and that like you're looking for opportunities to do it leaner if, if that opportunity exists. I love that share, especially the part on like, you know, no, no job below you. I, I, 
I created success the same way. I, I feel like, you know, there's not, you, how can you ask someone else to do something that you wouldn't do yourself or you no longer do yourself be maybe because the business got a little bigger or graduated to another level. I think that that's a, that's a, that's a great example of scrappiness um, throughout a whole organization. Yeah. And I think if you lead that way, then other people will too. So, you know, that you really, you want everyone on your team to lend a, lend a hand when they need to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, right now, you know, um, there's three different people on our teams that are executing demos at um, various, (laughs) various retail stores. And, and I think that that's what you need in a startup environment that people are willing to take on that little bit of extra um, and it, and it comes from you being, being willing to, um, nobody's going to do that for you if you won't do it for yourself. That's a, uh, that's a good share for culture building one oh one. you know, be the, be the, be the brand show up as, as how you want the team to actually, uh, do it themselves. And, uh, and I think whether you have 15 people on the team or when we have 150 people on the bloom team, that, that same kind of uh, mentality will, uh, will get you very, very far as a leader. I'd love to, uh, hear your thoughts. I know that they've maybe changed or you put, you're putting focus, you got, you have a goal for yourself for, you know, personal branding, you know, you've created a great brand in bloom. It's growing and for a lot of founders. Think about this, you know, like a uh, personal brand, put yourself out there as an entrepreneur, share your story on LinkedIn or whatever. Where, where's Karen? Where, I'd love to hear where you're at and, and, and what you've learned and some of the commitments there. Yeah. Well, I mean, this goes back to like it being hard to talk about yourself. Um, and I, and but I think just like for everyone to remember that there's somebody else who wants to be in your shoes um, that, you know, for me, when I think about the journey that I'm, I'm on, it, it's hard for me to think that I have, you know, something to teach someone else, you know what I mean? But the idea is that I don't know why we're trained to think that talking about yourself is like vain or, or something like that. Like you have things to share. You've, you have lessons to teach. If you have some, something like be a resource tool for someone who's earlier in their journey. So, and, and I think that people more and more today, especially, you know, the younger generation, millennials and Gen Z, they want to be attached to a brand, you know, not, and it doesn't come from, even if it's the most delicious latte you've ever had, like the depth of connection that you have to a person is always going to be different to the people behind a brand. And so, um, in terms of personal branding, you know, it's something that I'm, I, I'm conscious of in the sense that like the, the person to speak about the brand the most authentically is ultimately me um, and who has like the, the story of the brand. And, and that um, it's like another touch point and a different lens for people to get engaged and believe in the business and to become fans. So um, it's something that I'm working on. And I feel like this, this hour has just been like a long list of like Karen's to do, <laughs> which is stressful. But um, I do think it's like really powerful for people to connect to a brand from a different lens and to ultimately see humans behind a brand. And and it's great for your team too, to see what you're working on and how you view things. So it's, it's something that I want to do more of. And um, for me personally, like LinkedIn is my chosen platform and it's really rewarding. Like it's really rewarding to build a community from sharing your own personal experiences, maybe even more so than sharing product, you know, um, me being able to share, Hey, we did this raise. This is what I, this is how we did it. And it's like, you know, a a personal accomplishment that resonates 
the startup road can be very lonely. And I think that's one of the things that I, I hear the most, like they, people find that they're alone in it, but it doesn't have to be. And it starts from like you sharing your own personal experiences so others can share theirs. So, I mean, I guess I think of personal branding or like this personal branding exercise, A, like, you know, a benefit to the brand, but B, also like a benefit to me as an entrepreneur to like build a community around the stuff that sucks. And there is stuff that sucks no matter how good it looks from the outside. And, um, and that's powerful. It's motivating. And it's, it's what keeps you going. I think that uh, a whole bunch of people are going to uh, uh, get get a lot from that um, because everyone struggles in the same way. And if you have a, a great founder, great entrepreneur that is is executing a, a you know a growth year to get to nine million dollars in business and still wonders in her head if she's a role model for other entrepreneurs that are fa- following, you know, everyone struggles with that. Like it, it it's it, yeah. it is it is real, um, but people need role models to get to the first. To, to open their business door, you know, to get to the first hundred thousand, what does the first million dollar look like? What does the first capital raise look like? What are the struggles that are going on to like when customers say no, nine out of 10 of them or whatever, you know, and like, and that's why all the stories and, and, and sharing, uh, is, is critically important. But I think you're, you also realize that, you know, it's fair, it's therapeutic for yourself, like putting that time out there and then, and, and being helpful to others. Um, feels really good, you know? And, uh, and so it's a, it is a, it is one of those win-wins or like one plus one equals 11 kind of things. So uh, thanks for yeah, sharing that. I, yeah. And, and I think like something I tell myself too, is like if people don't want to engage with it, then they change the they channel, not engage. With yeah. It. They yeah, change the exactly. channel. Yeah. 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 So instead of us like spending all this time being like, Oh, like what are people going to think about this? It's more like, what does it mean to me? How can I show up? And how can I build community for myself? And just like taking that lens of like people who don't want to be there won't be there. So don't worry about it. I'd love to uh, ask what mentorship means to you, um, how you kind of think about mentors uh, and, 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 and if you have kind of key mentors in your, uh, in, in your entrepreneurship journey so far that have been integral. I think mentorship is like another layer of community that's so important. Um, for all the reasons that we've talked about, like, you know, imposter syndrome, low self-regard, like needing strategic input and a sounding board, um, building community when it feels lonely, like all, all those things. And, um, having someone to go to that is like really, um, in your camp and has context is so meaningful and useful. Um, I've been really lucky to have Um, a few mentor relationships that have been super beneficial for me. And, you know, not all of them are forever either. Um, You know, uh, I, when the business was about a million dollars, there was like a woman that I talked to once in a while, her name was in on that trick. And her thing that she like left me with was just like, why do you dream small? Like you, like if you dream small, it will be small. And like, that was like, like I somehow I needed that, like it's a crazy, crazy thought. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily like now I need more specific mentorship in specific areas. And, and like, it doesn't mean that I don't like love that person, but you find also mentors for like the stage that you're at. And so I think that um, it's something that founders should invest energy into finding that support. Um, People who are, 
like invested in you as a person, but also invested in your, you know, like the, like the business, not necessarily financially, but, you know, like emotionally, like excited for you. And, um, and my relationship with it has been sort of like that they're fluid relationships that often for me, like what I need out of them is like a sounding board, just like, like you've already kind of come to the decision, but you need that like little like check. And it's so valuable to have that externally from your team. Um, I don't think like me using my teammates like um, as sounding boards is necessarily like helpful for them because it's like not, it's like directionless in the sense, you know? Um, So I've actually found that, and this is like a change I'm making recently is that for when you are like not clear necessarily in what the next step is, I have found it really useful to have it as an external resource versus it being like me asking every single person on the team what their opinion is on something um, and them feeling really confused. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, but that's all like part of my own leadership journey. No, that, that's a great share too. I, I mean, I struggled with the same thing myself and, and realized, yeah, if I'm, if it's a riddle that's, that I'm trying to solve, um, go external and get some advice or get some, get some, uh, example or something instead of, I used to do the same thing and go to the team and like, what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? Um, yeah. which not to say don't get feedback from your team, but it, it can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. And really what they want, um, from their leader is like, here's the clear direction we're Literally. going. Here's your part in it. Here's what good looks like. Here's what success looks like. Now let's all go together. And, um, and, and too much of, uh, going to the well for like, uh, feedback and, and, and having them try to think about that vision can be, uh, can, can be counterproductive for sure. Um, yeah, I think that that's exactly, um, Definitely not that you don't get team feedback. That's not the takeaway at all. Um, but just that your brainstorming is like really not like a group session. And like that, I think that's like a change that that has happened recently for me where you go from like a team of one to where, you know, maybe there's like a team of two and everything is sort of like this brainstorm and that at a certain point, that's not productive. Um, but still learning, still trying to figure out the way there. Lifelong learning. Lifelong learning is the way to go. How can people connect with you? Is it, is it, uh, best on LinkedIn or what's, what's best for you if people want to follow up? Yeah. LinkedIn is great. I'm on there. I'm, uh, (laughs) building that personal brand. You're going to be on there more. I heard you. you, (laughs) Now you're going to be held accountable because this is going to be, this is going to be recorded and out there for the world. But, uh, (laughs) So appreciate you, Karen. Thanks for taking the time to uh, to come on and uh, and chat. Have a great, great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mike. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fada. That's it for now. See you next time.